You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, every once in a while, we get to talk to someone who's like basically an, an ETF VIP. And I think we have another one of those people today. Absolutely. You know, uh, we, we, we tend to follow the shiny objects a lot. And uh, that's great, you know, but the, sometimes you got to go to where the assets are. And so when you think about where the real money is, because sometimes I, I, I challenge myself. I'm like, we're covering the meta ETF like relentlessly, but when, when you really sort of think about where assets are, the big chunk of money is is with BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and a lot of those funds that, you know, might not get a lot of attention, but boy, do they get the assets. And so, um, you know, you, gotta, you have to talk to the industry leaders, um, you know, regularly. And we have one today. In fact, we have the, the biggest ETF company on planet Earth. So we have number one today, BlackRock. If, in case you haven't guessed it, <laughs> iShares has $2.4 trillion in U.S. ETF assets. That is unbelievable. I remember when you hit a trillion. Um, now it's 2.4. And now, you know, the, it's not just flows. The market appreciation is building the assets. And so, you know, at some point, you know, this is BlackRock and, and Vanguard in particular are going to lead ETF assets beyond mutual funds. And we've had several guests from BlackRock before, but they've all worked for this guy. So, Salim Ramji, the global head of iShares and Index Investments for BlackRock, where he's also a member of the firm's global executive committee. This time on Trillions, looking back and looking ahead with the global head of iShares. Salim, welcome to Trillions. I'm excited to be here, Joel and, and, and Eric, and thank you guys for having me. You and BlackRock, very close to having $10 trillion assets under management. Do you guys have like a big shot clock and, and like how, how much time until you hit $10 trillion? Increasingly, the, the, the number I focus on the most uh, kind of from where I sit is actually the number of clients that we serve. And I think the, the amazing thing is, and, and we don't talk about it uh, because assets are, are clear and transparent. But, you know, in the 50 years since we got our first client, and, and you all interviewed uh, Mac McQuown, who was our, you know, the inventor of the whole category, uh, which I enjoyed. And he, he secured the first client for Wells Fargo that became BGI, that became, um, that we acquired uh, uh, through BlackRock. You know, we now have 100 million people all around the world who use our index capabilities. And, and, and I think if there's one number that's, that's the most remarkable to me, uh, I know you'd have to rename your show hundreds of millions, and that's kind of less impressive than trillions. But but if there's a number that's that's the most impressive to me, it's that it's that there are 100 million people all around the world using our ETFs and using our index uh, capabilities for savings, for investing, for um, a whole assortment of things from that very first client that Mac had secured for us back in 1971. I mean, you know, th- that actually brings up an interesting question. You forget how many people are investing 
and in particular your shop, like when you are in your regular life, you know, throughout a year, um, do people kind of, I don't know, bring up the iShares ETFs they own? Like, are, are you a little bit of a celebrity given that iShares is so prevalent in many people's portfolios at this point? Uh, well, uh, this is the first job that I've had that I've been able to explain to my kids. Uh, and so if that's one indicator, I wouldn't call myself a celebrity with my 15-year-old and 11-year-old. Uh, I'm happy to report that both of them put their birthday money into iShares. Uh, that's sort of a household requirement. But um, can I? Can, are you are you are you willing to disclose the tickers? I am, and it's actually okay. it's, it's it's fascinating. Well, it, so uh, they they had saved up about uh, about a thousand dollars a piece, and I'd open up open them up an account, uh, commission free account, and I told them that they could invest in whatever they wanted as long as it was iShares. It was about a, a year or two ago, and my eleven year old is uh, uh, pretty frugal. And he had invested in two iShares tickers. He'd invested in IVV, which is three basis points, and he'd invested in ITOT, which is three basis points. And he really wanted to invest in the lowest cost ones that were out there. And so that, that's what he has in his portfolio. My 15-year-old is into technology. Uh, and in what I think was a very well-market-timed investment, he invested in iRobo, and he also invested in our software dedicated uh, ETF, which are a little bit more expensive in the 30s or 40 uh, kind of basis points, depending on the exact uh, investment. But they've done really well. And 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 y- y- you can't over-extrapolate over kind of two people who happen to uh, live with you. But I do think it brings out kind of just the diversity of, of many different types of investors out there. And and some are really looking for the theme, and some are looking for the low cost. Some are looking for both, and and it's just you know you extrapolate that across tens of millions of people, and you get kind of the 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 business that we've got. So, Salim, one of the things we want to do is look back on this year, and then we're also going to look ahead. But as long as we're talking about your your kids and looking back at the year, what did you what did you tell them when they came to you and said, Dad, what's up with these meme stocks? <laughs> They aren't that into investing that they were into the meme stocks and the like. You know, we obviously saw that. We looked at it. We researched it. You know, for a brief period of time, uh, there was uh, uh, some run up in in silver and including in our in our um, some focus on our silver ETF. Oh, yeah, that's right. But hold on. Can I just give the audience a little background here? So the meme Reddit crowd went to GameStop, then AMC. But then they all had this idea that if you if you somehow cornered the silver market, the whole financial system would collapse. Like they they it was almost like that little thing in the Death Star that if you can get the laser beam right in there, the whole thing will explode. And but they just didn't have enough, not even close. But they they used SLV to attempt this destruction of the financial system. It was all kind of like Keystone Copish in my opinion. But they. They did buy SLV one day and create volume that I believe was record volume for the ticker. And then it, it immediately sort of like faded away. But it was a story for a week, I think. Yeah, it was a story was that- for like a couple of days in a week. And 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 I think part of it, yeah, it, it, it was that. And so it was, a, I do think the meme stock piece, while it was, while it was very noteworthy, uh, and Eric, I, I'm not sure if it was you who's written about this, that like, you know, 95% of the media is sometimes about 5% of the activity and it's, yes. and the the more straightforward stuff doesn't get written about. But, you know, as we looked at this phenomenon and we really started to see where was 
the movement around self-directed, commission-free investing going? Because a lot of this coincided with commission-free platforms in the United States and massive growth in self-directed investors. Actually, the truth is, uh, if you will, a little bit more mundane. Uh, about 1% or a very small fraction of total re retail trading in the United States over the past kind of year or two has been in meme stocks. Two-thirds of it has been into ETFs, um, and it's mostly just purchases of ETFs. And so that was really the trend that we took a lot of faith in and a lot of focus in. And, and, and that doesn't show any real signs of abating, uh, if you will, because I think there's a, a fundamental shift that's underway one of which is a massive growth in self-directed investors since the beginning of the pandemic. And second is a complete reduction or a very, very significant reduction in commission barriers. How much um, of a headwind is inflation going to be? You know, it's a, I don't think we're allowed to say the word transitory anymore. I think, is that right? Uh, no, it's a, no, Jay Powell said it's no longer it's a, a word. Look, it's, it's, it. a, it's important to keep perspective around these things, that clearly inflation is elevated. And for uh, 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 many people, uh, that's a really unusual um, thing. Uh, I'm still old enough that I remember the early 80s and inflation was a different kind of animal back then. But I think as we look at it from BlackRock's perspective, yeah, inflation is elevated. But if you think about our own views, by the end of next year, by 2023, uh, those levels will start to moderate out once you get through some of the energy shocks and some of the supply chain shocks that we've been dealing with. And even if you look at the price of oil just in the past month or so, um, you can start to see some reduction. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a new risk. It's a real risk in investors' portfolios. We're certainly seeing it in things like our, our tips and our inflation ETFs. So like 20% of our fixed income flows are coming into inflation. But we're also seeing it in, in things that are great inflation hedges, whether that's value stocks or, or kind of our own value ETFs, uh, whether it's in things like real estate. And so there, there are plenty of ways for investors to protect and hedge against inflation, both in fixed income, in equities and commodities. But it's just new. <laughs> and it's, a, it's just making sure that as, as investors look at their overall portfolio, that they've got the right diversification and hedges built into place. You know, and that's really what we saw this year. The flows are ridiculous uh, for all ETFs. They, they're taking in about $4 billion a day. Normally, they've taken in $2 billion a day. This year, they took this just double step up. And people ask me, what, why the extra? And it was the breadth, you know, things like tips, commodities, um, you see a lot of the non, you know, uh, I guess beta ETFs taking in money. Some of the things that lagged, small caps, the value. I guess I, I, my question for you is our big thing from our outlook next year is ETFs have transcended the passive label. I think it's officially not – that association is broken. Whether it's the tips ETFs or, the you know, smart beta or ARC or themes, I don't, I don't think people – I think they really – the ETF is, is much more like a – a true rapper. And I, could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing this year in flows and where that extra money is coming from and how people are ut utilizing the wrapper a little bit? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point, Eric. And, and I'll, I'll cite a little bit of the global numbers, which will be slightly different than the ones that you cited, um, which I think are the U.S. numbers. But if we look at the global numbers, you know, today, there's over a trillion dollars that's come into ETFs uh, globally. 
uh, both here in the U.S. as well as in Europe, as well as in kind of a range of different local ETF lines uh, that we have and that others have across the world. And just as context, you know, around the time that BlackRock bought uh, BGI, so back in 2010, the total ETF market was a trillion dollars. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, this year, it's not even over yet, um, we're seeing that amount in the industry in flows. And I think the, the, the amazing thing is, when we look at the total ETFs for the industry relative to the addressable market, we think of the addressable market as all stocks and bonds. That's 3% of the global addressable market. Even if we take the number, Eric, that I think that you've used in, in other publications, which is the addressable market as all registered uh, uh, investment products, it's still 15%. So whichever way you take it, it's still a small number relative to a big system. And, and we absolutely believe, as you said, that the ETF is really just a wrapper. It's a more efficient way in which to wrap public market securities. And so we've kind of moved, we, we certainly have and are very proud of uh, holdings like my son has, which is, uh, you know, uh, good low-cost exposures like IVV. But we've also expanded into a whole arena of index-oriented ETFs, things like factors or ESG or thematics, which are transparent rules-based indices, but their goal is to outperform a traditional market cap-weighted index. And if you think about that category... You know, for us, that's about just under $400 billion of our ETFs are in those types of things, factors, ESG, and thematics. And that's double what it was just a few years ago. And so that's really a fast-growing kind of area. And, and, and we've also extended it into active management. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing to me just in the past year, you know, we launched our low-carbon transition readiness ETF back in April. It was the largest ETF launch in U.S. history, active or index, and it was an active ETF. And so all of these things are pointing to, I think, Eric, exactly what you're seeing and what we're seeing, which is the ETF is a, is a better technology. It's a better wrapper, and it can wrap all kinds of different public market investments. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So I, I want to talk about specific areas of growth, and and the one the first one I want to ask about is ESG because you BlackRock and iShares have been all in on ESG. How big of an opportunity do you think remains in that space for for inflows? Uh, I think we're at very very early stages of it, and I think we're at very early stages of it, uh, despite the very significant growth that we've experienced. So if you if you roll back the clock, Joel like three years ago, 
uh, you know, we had uh, uh, a dozen or two dozen different ETFs around the world. We managed about $10, $11 billion in those ETFs, and it was mostly a niche category catering to a niche clientele that was interested in it. And I, I don't think that was just us. I think that was the, the whole kind of area of sustainable investing just a few years ago. And I think what we've seen, um, uh, and Larry Fink, our CEO, has written pretty extensively about the tectonic shift in sustainable investing and in climate investing that we're seeing as a firm. But if you look to kind of the numbers today, you know, we're managing across index funds and ETFs and globally kind of north of $200 billion. And we're doing it uh, uh, across more than 170 different ETFs and index funds, uh, all in ESG. And so if you dig underneath it, what's really driving this growth from our perspective is um, two or three things. One, there's very significant client demand, and it was latent client demand. And it's not just in Europe. We're seeing growth in the United States. We're seeing growth in Japan. We're seeing growth all over the world for different ways in which to uh, adopt or um, get into ESG investing. The second thing, which is where the ETF comes in, is that clients are really wanting choice. And that really drove our decision around moving from a couple of dozen products to moving to you know, 170 plus, because for many clients, they had different pathways in which they wanted to adopt ESG investing. Some wanted screened, some wanted optimized, some wanted transition readiness, some wanted thematics. And I think the third thing is they wanted that with transparency and with efficiency. And so every ETF we manufacture, uh, including the active ones, including all the ESG ones, we have, we believe, clear labeling on the package, but we have complete transparency in terms of all the securities that are inside. We, we were leaders in having complete transparency of all the ESG scores, not just for our ESG ETFs, but for all of them. Uh, you know, we've committed that we're going to publish things like implied temperature rise by the end of this year um, just to enhance that. But I think you put the combination of increased client demand, greater choice, and benefits of the wrapper, um, combined with our underlying investment thesis that, that um, Larry's articulated pretty publicly around these being good longer-term ways in which to invest, that that package just kind of makes us believe that there is very, very significant growth to be had, even despite the pretty... Um, significant growth we've experienced in the past three years. So I, I get the, the the strategic vision for that, and I'm I'm curious though. There's the consumer demand for it. There's the transparency that you can provide, but then there's actually just this kind of fundamental thing that I, I'm I'm wondering how you all wrestle with it, which is when you when you invest in this, you know, you're you're it's all for better outcomes, right? And you're envisioning a better world, but often the data that underlies that doesn't actually, you know, back that up necessarily. You know, like there are companies who are contributing to climate change, but might get a positive score. How do you reconcile that? You know, we come back to this point about choice, about transparency, and giving the right metrics to uh, our clients to be able to help inform them. And so let me just give you two contrasts to kind of bring out kind of some of these things uh, around it. Some of our clients will say, we just don't want these sectors or these types of companies in our portfolio. And that's great. We can actually create and we have a whole suite of ETFs which screen out and, and, and have that. So if you, if you didn't want, for example, 
um, certain energy sectors, certain fossil fuel sectors in it. We got ETFs that do that. There are other clients who would say, and this was uh, inherent in the clients that invested in um, our low carbon transition readiness, it said, look, even if you exclude these stocks from one's portfolio, you haven't really solved the broader problem. And the broader problem is how do you help companies that want to invest in a greener transition? They may be big carbon emitters today, but they want to lower their, carb lower their carbon footprint and they want, uh, if you will, investment incentive to do that. And they're willing to show that um, uh, reduction over time. And they've invested in things like our low carbon transition readiness ETF, uh, where uh, the, the carbon footprint of that is, is focused on companies that do have, that may have higher footprints today, but are committed uh, to reducing them over time. And so those are two very different sets of clients with different sets of objectives. And so their portfolios may be different, but if we give them the choice if we give them the transparency so they know exactly what they're getting and we give them the metrics to make sure that their choices are informed as possible, that's the service that we think that we're doing to the clients, uh, even though they have very different pathways uh, uh, around how they want to invest their money. So we, we talked earlier a little bit about the hundreds of millions of clients you have, and we touched on on retail and how ETFs are so much bigger than than the meme stock moment. And I want to ask another question kind of in that same vein, which is the potential for institutional investment. And when you think about that that as a trend, how how much more potential for growth is there from the institutional side? Since, you know, again, retail get got a lot of buzz this year, but like going forward, how about how about institutional? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Joel. And it's it's important to remember that our roots were an institutional, right? The first client that... Uh, uh, that Mac had introduced 50 years ago as an institutional client. Uh, and, and, and I think and within the ETF kind of piece of the business, uh, that one of the, the, the really important shifts that's happened in a, in a positive way among our institutional clients was really catalyzed back in 2020. So if you think about all the stresses that the whole marketplace, uh, that ETFs, particularly bond ETFs, went through back in the spring of 2020. And you think about how they performed kind of through all of that stress. And I'm happy to talk about it. We've written about it. We're proud about how they performed under that market stress. But importantly, what happened was that many institutional investors that hadn't yet adopted bond ETFs in particular saw their resiliency, saw their ability to withstand um, market stresses, be able to still have the ample liquidity that they did, be able to still trade exceptionally well. And, and even the most skeptical institutional investors have become clients. And so, you know, if you, if you sort of turn the old narrative of index investing kind of on its head, and Eric, you talked about the blurring of index and active, but now eight of the top 10 active managers in the United States use our ETFs as part of their active investment process. In many cases, those are bond ETFs, and they're using it for liquidity, they're using it for lower transaction costs, they're using it to be able to access certain corners of the market much more easily and much more cheaply than they otherwise could if they held the bonds. But I think that's a, it isn't in the 100 million stat, but it's certainly a, a area that we're very, very focused on. And, and it's certainly an area that isn't talked about as much because it's almost a, 
it almost turns on its head the old notion of active versus index or even active and index, which is that active managers are using ETFs as part of their active investment process. And I think that's an area that we're seeing expansion, not just with other active managers, uh, but we're seeing it with insurance companies, we're seeing it with pension plans, we're seeing it with other large pools of assets that, especially in the bond market, are just finding it too antiquated or too non-transparent or too expensive, but they're finding the opposite to be the case uh, when they're able to access the bond market through ETFs. So that's a whole other area uh, that we're, we're very, very focused on, even if it isn't captured in the $100 million. So uh, you touched on the bond market, and I always say bond ETFs let people trade bonds like stocks. Everybody likes the way equities trade. ETFs have standardized and made everything trade like an equity, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, we have part of our outlook next year, we have the 5.0 era of ETFs in digital assets. And there's a, such a hunger out there. You just described it with the bond market. It's very parallel to trade crypto in an ETF um, because of all the benefits you just named in the way that's difficult. Advisors don't want to go into the exchanges. And the way the bond ETF really helped some people get access to bonds and, and it just made it easy. I feel like that's going to happen with crypto ultimately. And I got to think there's going to be a BlackRock total crypto market ETF in five years, maybe less. Yeah, I, I, what I would say to that, and, and, and I think the, uh, the, just to come back to the bond piece in a moment, I think there's a really interesting parallel here, Eric, between that and digital assets. But I do think the bond ETF, uh, and you know, we're we're coming up. I think next year will be our 20th anniversary of the first bond ETF ever launched. That's the good thing about having 1,200 products. It's always someone's birthday or anniversary kind of around it. But next year is the 20th anniversary of the first bond ETF, which we launched, and uh, and and it's become and is a modernizing force in the bond market because it's bringing transparency and it's bringing on exchange pricing and it's bringing liquidity, and and so it's a real innovation kind of in there. Digital assets is, is clearly at a much earlier stage uh, in the evolution, but I certainly am a believer in the disruptive capability of decentralized finance, of stable coins, and of um, uh, 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 cryptocurrencies to the entire financial marketplace itself. The, you can't see it here because it's on my desk and this is a podcast. Uh, but I just met with a professor at Duke named Cam Harvey, who's written a very good book called uh, uh, DeFi and the Future of Finance. And I'm a believer that the future of finance is here uh, in the decentralized capabilities uh, around it. I think cryptocurrencies are one kind of application of it and certainly not the most profound of all the different applications when you start to think about decentralized finance. And so we, we are um, uh, uh, writing for launch a thematic ETF, which will have blockchain and the ability for people to be able to access companies that are active in this space, just as my son is able to access kind of, you know, robotics, autonomous vehicles in, in some of the other uh, ETFs. And in terms of like actual crypto ETFs, I think that we want to make sure that whatever we do, whatever we put our brand on, whether it's the BlackRock brand or the iShares brand, doesn't matter. It, it's to the highest standards that people expect. And that means from a regulatory point of view, from a liquidity point of view, from a transparency point of view. And so 
I expect as the regulatory environment becomes clearer and as the underlying liquidity dynamics in that marketplace become more to our satisfaction, that some of those dynamics will work in in our favor. And so if you put a five-year horizon on it, Eric, yeah, like I, I think so. If you put a next month horizon on it, I don't think so. So I, I'm I'm really curious about this and and your interest in a space like DeFi. There's certain players in the world who are huge. You're one of them. This could be an existential moment for finance, right? How does someone like you, who has to wrestle with strategy for iShares, BlackRock, how do you make sure that you don't miss out on something that could be totally transformational? Yeah, I, look, I, I think the, the I, I look at 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 decentralized finance and all of its various applications as an opportunity. And I look at it as an opportunity first and foremost for our clients. And and a lot of the ways in which we've grown iShares, just to take the ETF example, uh, but you can abstract it to, to indexation more broadly, is by reducing frictions in the system in order to benefit our clients. We have the benefit that our only business model, our business model is a fiduciary business model. So everything we do is on behalf of um, other people's money. We don't have kind of, uh, you know, other businesses beyond that. And so if we're completely focused on how do we reduce frictions, the frictions may be a commission barrier on a self-directed platform in Germany or in the United States. The frictions may be the lack of transparency in the bond market. The frictions may be it's really expensive. The underlying financial plumbing of um, mutual funds or ETFs actually is quite antiquated and expensive. And if um, decentralized finance over time is able to do that in a better, cheaper, more efficient way, that's fantastic because that's like the basis on which uh, much of our growth has come from, which is from reducing frictions to benefit clients. And so the reason I get excited about um, decentralized finance, including um, the currency aspects of it, is because of that ability to reduce friction and the reason why I see it as an opportunity for BlackRock is that we're able to do it for the benefit of our clients. And a, a large part of how we've gotten as far as we have is by if we make it easier and we reduce barriers and we think about our clients' interests first and foremost, good things generally happen. And, and I think that even though we may all speculate or disagree about is it five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years out, there's something really, really compelling in the underlying technology case, I think, of decentralized finance that we are very focused on uh, 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 and, and, and very focused around how and in which pockets are the best pockets for us to uh, participate. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Um, okay, so pockets and DeFi is a great segue to one another question I have, which is direct indexing or custom indexing. Um, you guys do offer this. For those who don't know, what that really means is that instead of using the ETF or a mutual fund, you would just own all the stocks. Um, and the benefit of that, they say, um, is that you can custom the index. Like if you don't want Microsoft for some reason or you want to ESGify it, you can do that. It's like you know, like a tailor-made suit or something. Um, the other thing is you can do more tax loss harvesting because there's more losses to mess with. Um, and so there's some tax alpha opportunity. So advisors also are motivated to use this because I think they're feeling a little nervous that, hey, if every advisor is in like four core Vanguard or iShares ETFs, how can I be different? And so the need to differentiate, I think, is might drive some people there. That said... It seems to be going in the opposite direction of simple, cheap, and passive. It's it's kind of active. It's a little more expensive, um, and it's it makes your portfolio complicated. That's the debate I have a lot, and we're slightly bearish on direct indexing relative to the hype. We think maybe five ten percent market share in the next five or ten years it will have. What say you? I think first of all, if you take a step back and and custom custom separate account indices, it's actually how we got started in this business. Uh, and if you look at you know our uh, separate account business, which is about equivalent size to our ETF business, uh, is something that we've been doing for institutions, including in customized form, uh, for decades now. And uh, the application, and, and it was about a year ago that we purchased Aperio, uh, which was a real pioneer, we thought, in the U.S. high net worth and the U.S. wealth market. In, in applying those same techniques that we've been doing for institutions for high net worth investors uh, within the United States. And so the, the thesis underneath it was a bullish thesis, which, were, which uh, uh, has you know, proven itself out, uh, in our opinion. Um, but at the same time, all of these coexist in a much broader ecosystem. And so like the, the, the really interesting thing, and, and when we were involved in the due diligence, and you looked at you know some of their top clients. They were big iShares clients at the same time, because uh, in many cases, custom SMAs were complements in a broader portfolio that included alternatives and included ETFs. And so, even for the same client, even for the same in, same institution or individual, they wanted some of the convenience, simplicity, lower cost kind of aspects that ETFs had had, had provided, and they wanted custom features kind of inherent in their portfolio as well. And so that's very much what we're seeing when we see in U.S. wealth clients move towards fee-based or fee-based portfolios. Um, they certainly buy ETFs and about half of their portfolios kind of move towards ETFs. They buy um, uh, custom indices or they buy, separate, I'd call it custom separate accounts. Uh, I, uh, and that's been about 10 to 15 percent of the portfolio. They're also buying alternatives and clean mutual fund share classes and the like. 
to really be able to think about what do they want in the overarching portfolio. And so even for a given client, it's rarely been a binary choice of one way versus the other way. And it's really been a mix of different capabilities. And I think that that's really the bet that we're making, which is that a client's going to want choice, a client's going to want lots of different vehicles. And but what they're really going to want is they're going to want things that, you know, give them uh, uh, great efficiency, whether that's for taxes or uh, total expenses or both, be able to give them kind of strong after-tax returns, and be able to give them a portfolio which does what they, they want over the long term. ETFs, the value proposition they bring is just so strong. Liquid, tax efficient, three basis points. And, uh, you know, it, I the, there's some hype around direct indexing that it's going to completely sort of like disrupt ETFs. And um, it could. We're, we'll cover it if it does. But every year, the flows just aren't there. They're, they're very mild compared to the flowathon we see in ETFs. And I guess, do you see them, if ETFs are 40% of the whole um, fund pie right now and mutual funds are 60, how, what, what, that, what might that pie look like in 10 years? Yeah, I think... With it, it, direct indexing in there. Yeah, I, I, I think direct indexing will be uh, one... And you're just talking about U.S. wealth or the U.S. wealth marketplace? You're talking about... We'll do U.S. Yeah, U.S. for now. Yeah, look, it's a, um, it, it, it's a, it's going to be one of many different important parts of a portfolio. I personally think that ETFs are going to be half of any portfolio in a fee-based kind of world. Um, I think direct indexing is going to be, you know, 10, 15%. I think alternatives are going to be 10, 15%. And I think clean mutual funds or even just, you know, if you will, unmanaged securities may be, may be holding up the rest of it. And I'm fond of talking. Uh, I'm sure many of your guests are fond of talking about how the mutual, how the ETF has totally disrupted the mutual fund, and and uh, ETF is the default investment vehicle, kind of of this century, just like the mutual fund was of the last century. the The mutual fund is close to 100 years old uh, in a couple of years. But last time I checked, there's still five, six times the assets in mutual funds as there are in the ETFs. <laughs> And so even though ETF has been disrupting the mutual fund for the better part of 30 years, there's still a really big uh, mutual fund business out there. And, and I think the best way to think about this is not so much in binary terms that one takes over the other as it might in if you think about like generations of phones or you think about generations of, of, of computers, that many of these things exist for different purposes in a portfolio. Uh, and and it's how do you blend them in a portfolio, and that's the U.S. wealth case, versus even if you think about things like D.C. plans. I mean, D.C. plans have mutual funds in them. Uh, much to my frustration, they don't typically have ETFs in them because there's a technology barrier to having ETFs in many different 401k record-keeping platforms kind of within there. So there's a big embedded base of mutual funds there that that that's kind of got barriers which aren't you know, uh, they have to do with technology and infrastructure more than they have to do with anything else. And so I think you're going to have these millions and tens of millions and, you know, maybe even hundred, uh, hundreds of millions of clients all making lots of different choices. Some of them want hyper-customization. Some of them want ease and simplicity. Some of them want a bit of both uh, to be able to manage across the portfolio. And what you're really seeing is the marketplace at work with all the um, imperfections, irrationalities, uh, human behavioral biases kind of all happening all at the same time. And our main goal as BlackRock is that are we there to be able to serve the client 
in the way they want to be served. And so do they want a custom SMA as part of their portfolio? Yeah, we think probably. And we think there's a really important market to serve in there, which is why we uh, ended up you know, partnering with Aperio to kind of help us on the journey. Are they going to want ETFs? Absolutely. And if you look at kind of just the flows this year and the hopefully the flows next year and the, the flows for the next decades, that'll, that'll prove it out. And there'll be new things that'll evolve in the marketplace that, uh, that, you know, as we get more comfortable that we can meet the standards that clients expect of us, things like digital assets, that will also be kind of elements of, of people's portfolios. So all of this is just a, a fluid changing marketplace as opposed to something binary, you know, moving that one eradicates the other. I think these all coexist based on different client needs and preferences. So I want to talk about model portfolios. And I I think you you heard about it, but Eric and I did this uh, show show on uh, Quick Take called called uh, uh, Trillions Presents uh, ETF MasterChef. Yeah. We had Tushar That's right. uh, Yadava on. Yeah. Uh, it was a great guest. Other, other than uh, your show with Mac, it was my second favorite show that you, you, okay. you all hosted. Yeah, I, thought, I thought that was a great a, session. Appreciate it. Um, uh, Eric uh, allegedly cooks uh, holiday dinners, and you know I'm still waiting on an invite. But you know we'll, we'll find out more about that later. Um, uh, but I want to ask just about model portfolios and like how, what's your vision for them strategically, and where where are you at now versus where where you think the that space could go? Yeah. And, and, and I think model portfolios also gets to the, the, the essence of the discussion, Eric, you and I were having a few minutes ago around the U.S. wealth landscape, which is that this is a, a vast, by, by our, our estimations, it's just short of $5 trillion. Uh, so it certainly deserves a place in the Trillions podcast uh, kind of series. And it's vast, and it's not necessarily always easily understood because, uh, you know, we have a models business in BlackRock where uh, we have a group of portfolio managers who manage BlackRock model portfolios. But if you think of it in the context of that $5 trillion market, you know, it's about 5% uh, uh, or even less in the single-digit percentage points of that total marketplace uh, that we look at. There are many uh, different other asset managers that will run models of, of uh, model portfolios, including having a significant portion of iShares in them, there are many of our wealth management clients that will run model portfolios that will have significant portions of iShares. And then there are RIAs and wealth managers that are customizing models all over, which will have components of iShares and it will have components of custom SMAs and, and the like. So this is a, this is a vast uh, ecosystem, and we think that it's going to grow. Our own projections are that you know 4 or $5 trillion marketplace is going to be a $10 trillion marketplace. And you can look at that through the lens of the growth of fee-based wealth across the United States. And what we've seen is that as advisors move more and more to fee-based wealth, they're moving to model portfolios and they're differentiating themselves um, in part based off of the portfolio and, and customizing the portfolio to the client's needs and aspirations, but also in part because it allows them to focus more time on the relationship development aspects of their business model. And that could mean intergenerational wealth transfer. It could mean setting up trusts. It could be understanding a family's entire situation and all the complexities well beyond the investment complexities. And so from an iShares point of view, we look at all parts of the model infrastructure as potential clients. Certainly there's uh, uh, BlackRock models that include ETFs. 
that's a small part of the overall kind of piece. Uh, there's a much larger piece, which is other asset managers, wealth managers, advisors who are using iShares as component parts of their overall model portfolio. And that piece from our estimations is like two to three times the size and growing of the parts that are just kind of the the BlackRock model portfolios. And, and we're sufficiently optimistic that, you know, if you think about all kinds of model portfolios, it's about a third of our flows in the United States. We expect it's going to be about half of our flows from a U.S. iShares point of view over the next four or five years. And so more and more of our iShares are going to be bought, not like my kids buy them, which is a single ticker either for a price or for a theme, but they're really just bought as a component part of a much broader portfolio. Uh, and it could be for a reason around thematics or ESG or lower cost or lower carbon or a whole series of things that the, um, the, the iShares can now do. One other thing that you have not done, but we are very bullish on, is conversions from a mutual fund basically immediately converting to an ETF. Right. DFA has done it. JP Morgan's done it. We're predicting a trillion worth of conversions in the next 10 years with hundreds of funds. Now, that's only 10% of all mutual funds. There's been $57 billion, though, this year, and that's up from nothing a year ago. Um, what's your take on that? This would be versus entering the ETF world with a clone-like product, like the way Fidelity Magellan came in with the Fidelity yeah. Magellan ETF. Yeah, look, I, 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 that I, I think whether it's... That uh, doesn't really set the world on fire. Yeah, I, I think these, these whether it's conversions or redirections, you know, uh, uh, Vanguard's different because it's a share class, but J.P. Morgan and Dimensional did wholesale kind of shifts and have been pretty public about it. Uh, I do think it's a trend. Uh, whether it has the numbers you associated to it or not, I think it's, a, it's clearly a trend which is going to be measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars over the, the coming years. And for us, the way that we look at it is that it's just the next stage of growth of the ETF, that each of these different firms, the way that we look at it is what they're, what, what's being declared across the marketplace is the ETF is the default vehicle for millions of investors to invest. And, uh, and all the benefits that are in the ETF that I've, I've talked about, people are moving more and more towards that. Some of them do it through a launch, some of them do it through a conversion, some of them do it through a redirection of their kind of internal flow uh, around it. But what the trend line is, is that this is becoming the default vehicle for how more and more people want to invest. And we think that's great because it also then moves to the point that um, we talked about earlier, which is that they're not just moving to uh, a singular ETF, uh, it's not just everyone moving everything and converting everything to, you know, IVV or an S&P type exposure. It's it's basically a whole range of things from uh, pure indexation to, uh, you know, if you will, quantitative or quasi-index, quasi-active, like some of the ESG exposures or some of the factor-oriented exposures uh, that firms like Dimensional had moved towards even you know, embracing uh, uh, traditional security selection wrapped in an ETF. And so both because it's becoming the investment vehicle of choice and because it's really accelerating the shift that we talked about, which is it's, uh, it's becoming a wrapper for all public securities. Uh, we think that's really exciting because, again, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, whether you look at the ETF market as we do, as 3% of the addressable, or you look at it as you do, which is 15% of the addressable of regulated funds, 
that's still a vast opportunity to get more and more people to adopt it. And, um, and so, you know, uh, uh, it'll certainly mean more competition for us, which is great. We welcome it because what we also think is going to happen is it's going to mean that the overall pie or the overall category is going to expand at a very, very rapid rate, uh, which we're, which we're really exciting about continuing to lead and, and, and continuing to kind of expand the universe, if you will. Okay, Salim, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask everyone who comes on, on trillions. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite ETF ticker that is not your own? Oh, um, my favorite ETF ticker that is not my own. I have a lot of interest in what ARC is doing, in part because I think that they're really pioneering the ETF as a transparent form for security selection. And, uh, you know, they'll go up, they'll go down kind of as, as uh, uh, security selection kind of goes. But I think that's a really, really interesting development that's happened over the past, um, I, I mean, they've been in business for, you know, six, seven years, but particularly over the past couple of years. I think that's a really pioneering expansion, certainly one uh, we're looking to, to expand ourselves into. But I think that's a really interesting development in this blurring that we talked about. Salim Ramji, thank you so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Eric. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Falchinas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.